Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, great to be with you again on Informed Dissent Media. Awesome. We've got another great guest uh, to bring uh, to bear here, and... um, She's one of the thought leaders today in all things COVID and uh, related to the craziness of what's going on uh, in our country. And you know her as Dr. Kelly Victory. She's a board certified trauma and emergency specialist with over 15 years of clinical experience. Dr. Victory, interestingly, is an expert in disaster preparedness and the medical management of mass casualties, kind of like what's going on right now in our country. She is a member of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, uh, a combined effort of Harvard School of Public Health and the Kennedy School of Government to develop meta-leaders for national disaster preparedness and response. She's worked closely with officials from Homeland Security, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and multiple branches of the military. Dr. Victory, welcome to Informed Dissent. And so great to have you with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. This is right up my alley, informed dissent. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you've been on the front lines uh, talking about COVID and the politics of COVID. And really what Mark and I try to focus on is this intersection between healthcare and politics. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience and, uh, and what's going on in your world right now. Sure. Well, as you said in the introduction, I am a trauma and emergency physician by training and did that for many, many years, uh, almost 30, actually. Um, But I also have an extensive background in public health, uh, in including that I was the chief medical officer of some Fortune 100 companies over a better part of a decade and helped them through a number of large disaster issues, including pandemics. Uh, I was at the helm, for example, of Continental Airlines during the 2003 SARS uh, pandemic uh, and and helped lead them through that problem. So when this pandemic first hit in at the beginning of 2020, and we became aware that there was something going on, I was somewhat shocked at the immediate response from public health officials and even my own colleagues to the things that started to happen within days and weeks of understanding that we had an infectious respiratory virus that was going around. And it it sort of tumbled downhill from there. So I ended up on the front lines, really uh, not purposefully, but because I I felt this sense of a downward spiral, this uh, overwhelming fear and panic and and this burgeoning uh, mass hysteria that was happening well out of proportion, I felt, to the actual risk from the darn virus itself. So I started speaking. Uh, I've always done a lot of media. I've done a fair amount of television and radio throughout my career on things related to uh, disasters and disaster response, whether it's an active shooter issue or an earthquake or a wildfire. 
And uh, so I was th- that was not new to me. And I used those platforms to try to bring a more measured, more sensible, um, more well-balanced response to what I saw going on all around me. That's how it started really back in January, February, March of 2020, and then took off from there. Um, so I did have spent the, the better part of the last, frankly, 21 months in addition to clinical practice and everything else that I do uh, for an income, I've spent an unbelievable amount of my time simply trying to provide a voice to people, a more, as I said, more measured, uh, less panicked, uh, more sensible, common sense approach to how we can address uh, this, this public health crisis. So I assume you don't think Dr. Fauci has done a very good job in managing this crisis. <laughs> Well, Dr. Fauci, you know, unfortunately, and I've never met the man personally, he may be a very nice human being, but he's done an abysmal job from a public health perspective uh, in so many ways. And I'm happy to go through that litany. Uh, Amongst other things, uh, let's face it, Dr. Fauci has not practiced clinical medicine for 53, 54 years now. Uh, The last time he actually saw patients clinically, the CAT scan had not been invented uh, to put a little... (laughs) just to put a little perspective on things. So I would suggest that he isn't necessarily the person who is best in a position um, to be leading this. Furthermore, he's a really lousy communicator. Um, He has done a very poor job, I think, of setting standards and explaining to people reasonably why we are doing certain things. And the reason I think he can't do it is because it doesn't. uh, it, it, It defies reason and logic and certainly defies the science. One of the greatest um, disasters in this entire debacle, for example, was treating everyone as if we were all at equivalent risk. We've known from the very beginning of this pandemic that we are not all at equivalent risk from COVID. And in fact, the vast majority is at a relatively low risk. Yet people like Anthony Fauci stood up and acted as if everybody was at an equivalent risk and therefore with a broad brush applied standards and mandates that impacted the entire population. You know, when I put my public health hat on, as I said, I've spent decades really entrenched in public health. The mandate of public health is to consider the impact of any particular intervention or mitigation scheme on the entire population not just one individual. So it's very different from when I am seeing patients in the emergency department or in my office. At that time, that is a one-on-one interaction and that patient is my sole concern. When I put my public health hat on, it's very different. I have to look at how any mitigation scheme, whether it's lockdowns, social distancing, closing schools and restaurants, limiting access to church, all of those, mask wearing, all of them, I am obligated to consider what is the impact, not just on one person, and frankly, not just on one disease process, but on the entire population, and not just physical health, emotional health, financial health, you know, spiritual health, all of those things. And that wasn't done. And from a public health perspective, that is an epic failure that I cannot forgive. I think we're all kind of living through that. Um, I used to hear you a lot on local radio. Uh, What happened with that? 
Well, I was, again, the uh, KABC, the, um, uh, which is a, a, a great station out of Los Angeles, uh, and their ho- the host of the show I was on, John Phillips, uh, who is a very dear personal friend. I've been on the show with them for years, the better part of a decade. I was their go-to physician for all things disaster. I covered a multitude of active shooters uh, cases, uh, many, many natural disasters, uh, measles outbreaks, you name it, cholera outbreaks, uh, dysentery, I would be the person they, they called for. When the pandemic hit, I very, very quickly became the voice of what um, was the doctor hour, a full hour in the middle of the show um, that was dedicated to covering COVID. And I did that five days a week for 20 months, um, every single day, and we covered all things COVID. The first half hour was generally covering uh, what the newest, um, whether it was the, you know the, the newest statistics or the newest mandates or whatever. And then the second half hour of the show, we took calls from from listeners. Um, it's my understanding from everything I was told from from John multiple multiple times and the highest levels um, of their their senior leadership that the show and the ratings were off the charts. It was incredibly well received. Uh, and I began receiving hu- literally hundreds of emails a day, which I still get from, from people who listened or called in or felt that it was helpful to them, whether they got a specific answer to a question about, you know, what, what dose of vitamin D should I take, or whether it was simply that they felt reassured or less frightened because of the particular spin I was putting on the entire thing. Um, unfortunately, about maybe six weeks before the recall election, um, frankly, I think the show got spooked. Um, and it wasn't certainly wasn't um, uh, my co-host, uh, you know, John Phillips. Uh, I think it was at far higher levels at the station and likely at, uh, at Cumulus Radio, who owns them, became, uh, and they, were, they articulated it, they became very nervous about giving out any, quote, is what they say, negative information about the vaccines. And they decided that it was in their best interest to take the entire show off the air, the the one o'clock hour, um, the doctor hour, take it off the air, tell people that they were going to use that hour instead to cover the recall election uh, so that they could avoid uh, talk any potential negative information about the vaccines because they couldn't control it. For example, if someone called in and said, well, Dr. Victory, you know, I I heard that so-and-so had a blood clot from the J&J vaccine, or I'm allergic to polyethylene glycol. What would happen if I took Pfizer? They were, I would then, they know that I would answer those questions honestly. That's what I do is give true factual information. And my hashtag has always been facts, not fear. And the station said, we don't want you to do that. We don't want you to say anything negative about the vaccines. And I said, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm incredibly pro-vaccine in general, but I have significant concerns about these particular vaccines and the station knew it. And rather than risk my saying something negative that they thought they might get backlash or somehow they came up with this idea. And undoubtedly, I have to assume that there were lawyers involved on the on the station side and that therefore and they were concerned for some reason about potential liability that somebody would would 
not take the vaccine, get COVID, become sick or die, and then say, I didn't get vaccinated because Dr. Kelly Victory, you know, scared me about them or, or indicated that I, I didn't need a vaccine or something of that sort. In any event, they made the decision. And from my perspective, you know, I was doing this, I did do this, as I said, for 20 months, five days a week, for free. I, I did this completely uncompensated. I was never paid a dime for the duration of this. This was pure, uh, I am nothing if not mission driven. So the idea that I would um, then be asked to in any way change what I said or, or modify what I said was, was simply not going to happen because the entire value to me of doing the show and being there was to be able to provide that part of the narrative that people aren't otherwise accessing. If you just want to give them the same storyline, then people can tune into NPR um, you know, or, or, or MSNBC or CNN. The, um, the beauty to me of the show was my ability to give this more balanced approach and, and provide uh, some bits of the story that people weren't otherwise accessing. So um, I, I can't say we parted ways because it, it wasn't that formal. They simply made a decision to put the show on hiatus. They have subsequently, they came back to me after the recall and asked me if I would come back. Um, to to uh, to do the show in a they were limiting the time frame on it. And I said, I, I um, I just needed more time to think about that. I Unfortunately, once somebody ha is clearly uncomfortable with my speaking the truth, um, perhaps it's not the best uh, platform for me. Even if they doubled your pay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, you know, I, I you know, unfortunately, um, you know, I was bringing them clearly great ratings uh, and overwhelming success of that hour. Uh, but as I said, the... You know, I have uh, I have other things I can be doing, other platforms I can use. This was an uncompensated, uh, you know, time, and it was I was doing it purely to be able to bring people um, some sense of of the truth and to give them, as I said, that part of the narrative that they weren't otherwise able to access through other media channels. Um, so unless I could be truly convinced and guaranteed, frankly, that um, other than the handful of words you can't say because of the FCC, that I would be able to say what I what I believed was was the truth. I was really disappointed to hear that you were taken off the air. I listen to you quite frequently as I'm driving around LA. I spend a lot of time in my car. And I could see that you were very well received. The information was honest, rational, entertaining. You had a great rapport with the host. And uh, then you just disappeared. You yeah. said, and you were introduced on the show as having been a former chief medical officer of a major pharmacy. Something that I'm interested in understanding from your perspective, since you have some insider knowledge about this, is why do you think the major pharmacies, Walgreens, uh, Rite Aid, and CVS are the big ones, have made a public policy, a formal public corporate policy, to prohibit the fulfillment of all ivermectin prescriptions for physicians in the United States? I, I got to tell you, Mark, this is unconscionable. Um, it, it's it's truly unprecedented in my entire medical career, uh, and it is purely an issue from my perspective of money. 
this this comes down to dollars and cents. Uh, not only is big pharma making billions and billions of dollars on these vaccines, but the uh, the the drugstore chains are as well. Let's be very very clear about it. Um, this to for people to understand for your I don't know how much of this you may have covered in other shows, but the reality is this. Um, it, all three vaccines were rolled out under an emergency use authorization. In order to have an EUA, meaning they weren't FDA approved, none of them. In order to get an EUA, the drug company or the manufacturer has to submit to two specific things. Number one, that they believe based on preliminary testing that the vaccine is likely to be effective. And number two, that there are no alternative treatments. So if they were to acknowledge, if anyone were to acknowledge that any medication, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, budesonide, any of those things actually worked to treat and cure COVID, they would risk losing that emergency use authorization for their vaccines, and they would be forced to go through the rigorous, extensive, multi-year trials that are normally required to get FDA approved. So they, uh, the big pharma clearly applied the thumbscrews to Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, all of them, and said, you know, you will not only not, you know, agree with these, but you will just not fill these prescriptions. We are not going to allow people to believe or understand or treat themselves with these medications you know, FDA approved, dirt cheap, very safe, readily available medications, because it will risk the EUA that is allowing these vaccines to be used. It's very clear this is about money. Uh, and when it comes to the whole FDA approval, the, um, the mainstream media has been largely complicit because they have failed to explain to the American public the reality, and I'm surprised how many physicians don't understand this, the FDA approval process. When a drug, and I'm, I, when a drug becomes FDA approved for use in humans, that says one thing and one thing only. We have decided that it is safe for use in humans. Full stop. It's safe. Has nothing to do with efficacy or what uh, conditions or illnesses it's used for. That's a separate portion. The FDA then gives the indications for that this drug can be used for, for this disease process, these illnesses. That part of their approval only impacts how the drug can be marketed. Has nothing to do with how any of the three of us can prescribe it. Okay? Once hydroxychloroquine was FDA approved, stamp of approval, it's safe, which happened 65 years ago, we can prescribe it for anything. I can prescribe hydroxychloroquine and so can you for any indication, not just malaria, not just rheumatoid arthritis, not just lupus, but anything we want. The drug manufacturer can only market it for those three things. That has nothing to do with what we... So the mainstream media was complicit in trying to lead the the public to believe that because these drugs weren't quote approved for for covid that they somehow were you know snake oil or that you what's, somehow what's were doing the, some you know what's the media's motivation for doing that do you think Honestly, I think they're just shills for the left. I think that they are just so in the bag. They will repeat the, the narrative 
um, that is given to them from the left, which comes down from the, the FDA and the CDC. As far as I'm concerned, they are all corrupt. They are wildly corrupt. Uh, it goes from, you know, to the to the very top. Uh, and they had a narrative that they wanted to promote on this. Let's face it, the, um, you know, we knew from the beginning, I, I was one of the first people out there, for example, who said in February that this virus clearly came from a lab. It was lab manipulated. Anybody who has even a lick of background in virology knew it once we looked at the genomic sequencing. Um, and that was very clearly going to lead right back to the NIH because they had funded this gain of function research. And they've spent the last better part of 20 months trying to cover that up, trying to promote these vaccines, which were clearly in the works uh, long ahead of when everybody thought they were. And there are billions of dollars to be made. So there's there's corruption, there's money, it's everything of a great John Grisham uh, movie, except that, you know, your novel, except that, you know, you and I are living it and it's destroying our economy, it's destroying our society. But I think it really comes down to, um, for most of them, for money and the mainstream media is, a sh you know, our shills for the left, unfortunately. You, you know, you brought up uh, early on uh, that you left the John Phillips show in part because you were going to tell the truth about vaccines if, if and when you were asked. What is your perspective about the rollout of the vaccines? Yeah, well, it's a great question. As I said, and I truly mean it, I have been considered, you know, called a vaccine zealot in years past because I've spoken and written prolifically on the importance of vaccinations. Um, but when I say that, what I mean are vaccines that have gone through the rigorous testing that is that is required to bring something to market. Uh, manipulating the immune system is tricky business. I consider the immune system the last great frontier of human medicine. It isn't predictable. It isn't always reliable. And there's a reason why the average vaccine takes four to six years to come to market if it ever makes it to market at all. Let's face it, there are a heck of a lot of viruses that have been around longer than COVID-19 for which scientists have never been able to create a safe and effective vaccine. Things like HIV, herpes, norovirus, Coxsackie virus. I could go on and on. A lot of viruses that we haven't been able to create a safe and effective vaccine for. So I have huge concerns about the rapidity which, which they were rolled out. Furthermore, let's face it, we have never in the history of medicine had a safe mRNA vaccine. Again, not because scientists haven't tried. We've been working on mRNA vaccines for well over a decade. And every time those vaccines have failed during the animal trials, sometimes with disastrous results, so when I heard that they were rolling out a messenger RNA vaccine, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a problem. Then you add in, if you have any background in epidemiology, there's a reason why we never roll out a vaccine during a pandemic. It puts very powerful evolutionary pressure on the virus, and it actually will drive mutations. Putting so are you are you saying that the are you saying that this is not a pandemic of the unvaccinated? <laughs> I am saying this is not a, a a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Far from it. In fact, it is the vaccine that is likely 
promoting the rapid development of these variants. You know, all viruses mutate. Uh, coronaviruses happen to be very good at it. They're, they're highly adept at it, and they do it more quickly than the average virus. That said, these vaccines and the way they were created, because they are so narrow, what, what the layperson might call leaky, um, it was a disaster totally predictable from the beginning. If you are going to create a vaccine that it targets a singular spike protein in a coronavirus that is so good at mutating, uh, it's going to fail. The example that I give lay people is I say, you know, if you develop this, this, these vaccines recognize that singular spike protein. It's like saying to your immune system, okay, the, the foe, the enemy is the guy with the red baseball cap. So we're going to have a big army that recognizes the red baseball cap. Get the guy with the red baseball cap. All that guy has to do is take off the red baseball cap, that minor mutation, and it's going to slip right by that army of antibodies, unrecognized. If, on the other hand, you're like the hundreds of millions of Americans who have had COVID and recovered, those people who have natural immunity, they developed antibodies to the entire virus. They recognize the red baseball cap, but they also recognize the shoes and the hat and the briefcase and the glasses and the trousers. So that foe is going to have to change a whole lot of its appearance in order to slip by that army of antibodies. So natural immunity, hands down, is stronger, more powerful, robust and enduring than any vaccine induced immunity for these types of vaccines. So it's not that I'm anti-vaccine, I'm anti this type of vaccine rolled out in the middle of a pandemic with a technology that has never been successfully used in the past. It was a recipe for disaster. If this vaccine program is driving mutations, essentially driving the pandemic forward, fueling it, giving it new life, reinvigorating it, and it's not preventing infection, and it's not preventing transmission of infection, i.e. it's not a vaccine, it's a therapeutic, let me throw something at you, and I want to hear your opinion. Is the way out of this early treatment? Oh, hands down. Absolutely. That's, and that's the tragedy in this, Mark, is that we have a huge and growing cocktail of safe, effective, readily available medications to treat this thing. Okay, and we've known about them. And so, by the way, has Anthony Fauci and the NIH for a long time. The NIH, I I will remind people, you know, published a paper in 2005 on the efficacy of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine against SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS. They knew darn well that hydroxychloroquine would treat COVID-19. They just didn't want to let anyone else know that because of their, their, you know, how much they wanted to roll out these vaccines. Early treatment is absolutely the answer. Um, as, as you know, uh, Brian Tyson, who I know you've spoken with in the past, and, and I are part of the, the website, earlycovidcare.org, where we have documented um, all of the studies and the protocols to do this. The answer clearly is early treatment, uh, with these safe medications, the what happened during the for the duration of this pandemic is what uh, what I and, and you know Peter McCullough and others have called therapeutic nihilism. This idea that you get COVID, you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, and they tell you to go home 
take Tylenol and wait and don't come back unless you get shorter breath. That's tantamount to saying to someone, yeah, well, you know, if you're getting ready to go to bed at night and you see smoke coming from the toaster, just go to bed. And if you wake up and your kitchen's on fire, call us back. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's insane. What, what, what infectious disease are you aware of that benefits from the tincture of time? None. OK, you know, we, we don't wait with pneumonia. We don't wait with strep throat. We don't wait with meningitis. We treat those things with the medications at hand. And had we done that um, with whether it's hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin and, and the uh, again, it's not a singular drug. It really is a cocktail that works for this this virus. We would have saved you know hundreds of thousands of lives and the places around the globe that have employed simple medications like uh, ivermectin have seen a precipitous fall, almost to zero in cases of the spread um, of COVID. And we knew this again from the beginning, areas of the of the globe like sub-Saharan Africa. Where Uttar Pradesh? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, even, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, that was, you know, where their population was largely on hydroxychloroquine already because of the, the prevalence of malaria. So many people take it prophylactically that they had such low rates of, of COVID. It was proof was in the pudding from the beginning. We didn't need um, any fancy, uh, you know, models, these models that they kept going back to at the CDC and the NIH uh, for things. We don't need models. We've got real life data. Let's just look at right, you know, it's right in front of our eyes. Um, and we could have seen that that was the way out. And still, as you point out, Mark, it's hard for physicians to actually prescribe these simple medications because you have obstructionists in the in the form of the the pharmacies themselves and state medical boards. Um, let's face it; they have uh, managed to to weaponize state medical boards through all this. I've had multiple complaints against my medical license, um, not for prescriptions I've written, but for even daring to speak of them for even saying hydroxychloroquine on the air, for even texting or tweeting or posting about ivermectin, for even suggesting that there are medications to treat this, I've had people saying, oh, you know, I'm a threat to humanity. Well, how do we get these medications to patients then? If you're being silenced, I'm being silenced, Jeff is being silenced, pharmacies are not prescribing. We have the data, we have the tools, we just don't have the means. What needs to change? What needs to happen for this to be successful? Well, I will tell you, I think what, what most people are doing, I certainly have, is find a, a um, compounding pharmacy where you have a pharmacist who believes in the right of physicians to actually practice medicine um, and say, you know, if you are a licensed physician with a valid DEA license that is unrestricted, you have every right to prescribe the medications you feel are best for your patients. Um, I have gone to smaller family-owned pharmacies and compounding pharmacies and have had great success in getting the medications that I need for my patients that way. Um, the uh, the literature now is replete with evidence. Let's face it, there, you know, the last meta-analysis on ivermectin looked at 66 studies uh, on ivermectin, 60 of which showed overwhelming evidence of efficacy. Um, as you said, that province, the, lar the most densely populated province in India uh, with 241 million people has driven their incidence of COVID to zero uh, because of the use of ivermectin along with zinc. Um, 
And again, it really, it's not just the early um, treatment. Uh, it's this singular focus on vaccines that I find so problematic. Not only have we not been allowed to talk about early treatment, but we haven't been able to talk about even the most rudimentary things that people should be doing and should be learning about with regard to how to improve their immune response and their immune health. Things like vitamin D supplementation. You know, we, we know and have known from almost the beginning, from March of 2020, that vitamin D levels were incredibly um, or highly related to outcomes with, with COVID. And given the overwhelming incidence of vitamin D deficiency in this country, uh, we're talking, you know, 80% of Blacks, 50% of Hispanics and upwards of 30% of Caucasians are vitamin D deficient in the United States. So simply supplementing vitamin D and getting people's levels into the desired range would decrease risk of hospitalization by over 50%. Um, the importance of zinc. Uh, we, we know that other than age, age over 75, and unfortunately there's nothing you can do about that, the most highly correlated risk factor is obesity. Uh, for a bad so outcome and diet weight loss yeah right and so yet have you heard one public health official have you heard no. anthony fauci rochelle walensky or any of the rest of them stand up and say look even if you weren't motivated by before you know of all times this is the time to lose that 25 pounds and to start exercising because we know how closely related obesity is to bad outcomes with covid no instead they told people stay indoors we close all the gyms, close the community swimming pools, close the parks, stay indoors, you know, binge watch Netflix and eat Pringles out of the can. It's it is not a recipe for improved health. It's a recipe actually for making people sicker. Hey, now I like Pringles. <laughs> I do, too. But but it's it's one of those things where you think, why are they not talking about those? If you want to talk about vaccines and, and perhaps we ultimately will get a safe and effective vaccine that will be useful for those people. For example, if my parents were still living today in their 90s, uh, in a nursing home or an assisted living uh, with underlying health conditions, I would likely suggest that they get vaccinated for COVID because their risk of having a bad outcome should they contract the virus would be relatively high. It might be four or 5%. But for healthy people under the age of 50, the risk of a bad outcome from COVID is no higher than risk from, from influenza and likely lower. And risk how about children? of people, yeah, children under the age of 18, the risk is so de minimis as to be essentially zero. Um, you know, Marty Macri's study out of Johns Hopkins that looked at 48,000 cases of COVID in people under age of 18 found a mortality rate of zero. You know, the CDC themselves is only willing to acknowledge 21 months into this a total of 430 deaths under the age of 18, quote, with COVID, doesn't mean they died of COVID. They may have died of complications from diabetes or cancer or even trauma, but a total of 430 people under the age of 18 died and happened to be COVID positive at the time of their deaths. We are talking about a risk so low as to be, as I said, essentially zero. So the idea of foisting upon these kids 
masks, social distancing, whatever that made up construct is, um, you know, lockdowns and God forbid vaccines that have not been adequately tested with unknown neurologic implications, autoimmune implications and fertility implications, I think is unconscionable. And it breaches the most sacrosanct rule of medicine, which is first do no harm. What's in your future? I know you're out there speaking, uh, you're telling the truth. I hope you get another national audience where um, where they'll have you on and people can listen to you. What does your future look like? Well, I will continue to do uh, these sorts of podcasts. I go do probably you know ten or twelve different radio and television stations every week. Um, I'm invited on, so my audience, although maybe small numbers at a time, um, I, I get audiences all across the country. I still write prolifically. Um, I am incidentally, uh, as an aside, one of the lead plaintiffs um, with uh, President Trump in the class action lawsuit against big tech for censorship. Um, the the Trump uh, legal team approached me in March of this year and asked if I would be a co-defendant with the president. Um, and I said, absolutely, because I feel it is such an important issue um, and it has done such a disservice I, to Americans for the duration of this pandemic. And again, this is this is not about Dr. Kelly Victory's right to free speech, uh, which certainly I have. My First Amendment right is, you know, certainly has been violated. But it is more a violation, I think, of the the rights of all Americans to hear all sides, to hear the information, particularly at a time of national crisis, when people are starving for information, they're panicked, they're trying to educate themselves to make the best decisions for their families. Um, and to limit their access to information, I think is an egregious affront to, to the rights that we hold dear in this country. So I'll be spending a fair amount of time on that lawsuit as well. Uh, and then I stay very busy with, with clinical duties and, and uh, the rest of the things in my life. So I, um, although I, I miss being on KABC, I truly do. Um, I am hopeful that perhaps we will find a time for me to return there um, to an open and uh, free speaking airway uh, where I don't need to worry about um, being censored or censoring myself, because that's one of the things I don't know if either of you have been censored on social media. But part of what happens, it's insidious. Um, when you get back on the platform, you start to self censor. You find yourself saying, should I post this? Is it worth it? Is this the thing that's going to get me kicked off again? Will I get put back in the penalty box if I, if I say the hydroxychloroquine word? Or will I, if, I re, if I tweet out this uh, study from you know, the University of uh, wherever, you know, will I get put back in the penalty, penalty box? So you start to self-censor. And that is really tragic, I believe. Um, I think that we all need to be able to to hear this debate. Let's face it, when all of us were in training, uh, we were encouraged to have robust, vigorous, respectful, but debate. Uh, the entire time I was the chief medical officer for these Fortune 100 companies, I had a plaque on my desk that said, argue with me. And I would say to people, tell me why this is the dumbest idea I've come up with. Tell me why this is going to fail. What haven't I seen? What, what's the pitfall I'm not seeing here? Why is this, you know, uh, why am I not analyzing this data correctly? That's the basis of healthcare. That's the basis of medicine. And it's how we advance science, shutting people down 
if there was only one person giving Anthony Fauci that kind of feedback, we'd probably be in a better position. <laughs> well, I've said to people, if, thank God Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube weren't around during Galileo's time, or we'd still think the earth was flat. Well, you know, we had that one person actually pushing back against Dr. Fauci, and that was Dr. Scott Atlas that uh, Trump invited to be part of his COVID yes. uh, team. But unfortunately, he got beat up pretty badly in the media, social media, and on mainstream media that finally he just had to, he just had to leave. And I think that that's, you know, unfortunately, and people need to make their own personal decisions based on what's right for them. Um, God only knows I have suffered the slings and arrows for the past 20 months, and I, I remain a heat-seeking missile um, because it's <laughs> because I can. And and um, but everyone has to to it, it has. There have been times where it hasn't been a lot of fun, um, but I respect uh, Scott's decision to to leave. Dr. Atlas is a, really a stellar human being from everything I could tell about him, and. and and I felt for him because he was truly in the crosshairs by standing up uh, next to President Trump. And unfortunately, so many people have been shut down. I've been disappointed in my own colleagues uh, for their unwillingness to really stand up. I think there is power in numbers. Uh, and I appreciate platforms. I appreciate you making this platform available. It's critically important. We, we may have a small voice to a small number of people, but I think it's important. And it does go viral. It does spread if you impact one or two or half a dozen people hear something that they hadn't heard before that makes them think, well, maybe I'm not getting the whole story here, or maybe I'm not fully educated by simply Googling uh, this medication or, you know, or reading something on Facebook, then we've done our jobs. Scott Atlas may have the last laugh because he's publishing a book. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's coming out very soon. And I know that because the editor of his book is the editor of my book, which is going to be coming out in about a month after. So I think this is one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on, because uh, we want to uh, help support and promote the voices of those who have been harassed and shut down and censored and canceled, because those are most often the voices that need to be heard. Well, I appreciate it very much. As I said, I, I think that, um, and again, I, I have no problem if somebody wants to argue with me on the, the substance, let's have that. If you want to tell me I've misinterpreted the data or I've underestimated the risk or I don't understand what that study really concluded, terrific. Let's, let's roll up our sleeves and have that debate. I'm all for that. But I will tell you that, you know, we wouldn't tolerate it. Um, and, and it's people on the right or conservatives, however you want to think about it, wouldn't tolerate doing it to the other side, regardless, for example, of how I might feel about abortion or terminating a pregnancy. I will, would not believe it was right. And I would be offended if someone went and Googled unwanted pregnancy, and the only information they could access was about adoption agencies. Because that's they have a right to access all of the information, to do their own research, and to come to a conclusion on their own. Um, you know, medical autonomy, healthcare autonomy should be sacrosanct, and so should informed consent. People have a right to make a decision for themselves, regardless of whether or not I, as a physician, agree with it. And so I think that we need to provide that balance. And if people want to have respectful debate on the substance, I bring it on. Happy to do that. Where can people find out more about you? What are your uh, coordinates on social media, et cetera? 
Well, the only social media I am on is Twitter, and I am at Dr. Kelly Victory. Uh, and I actually do respond to people's questions as much as I can. I also am one of the uh, experts on earlycovidcare.org um, and am happy to... I post all of my uh, media events, things like you know, when I do television and radio and those sorts of things, those all get posted on earlycovidcare.org, which is a great website. It's really a rich resource, not only for patients, but also for clinicians. If there are doctors out there, clinicians who haven't, for example, maybe kept up on this from the beginning and are now feeling behind the eight ball, there are great resources for clinicians with protocols that really walk you through how to provide early treatment to your patients uh, and how to access an expert who can help walk you through it if you're having trouble. There are resources for patients, how to find a physician in your area that might be like-minded, uh, and a lot of research and a, a really big a compendium of, of studies there that people can, can access. So I would encourage people to go to that website. But I have a relatively small social media footprint. Um, I am happy to say, particularly this week with everything that's coming out, I have never in my life been on Facebook, uh, Instagram, or WhatsApp, <laughs> and happy to say it, um, but I, I am on Twitter. Or TikTok. Or TikTok. Things you will not see is Dr. Kelly Victory dancing on TikTok. <laughs> Earlycovidcare.org seems to me to be a great curated site that brings together many different protocols and uh, informational pieces, including a list. I think last I counted, there's five different sites that somebody can click on to get to telemedicine docs if they're interested in that service. Yes, and it's so important. Great sites because um, one of the most frequent questions I get from people is, you know, how can you help me get this medication? Uh, and, and via email, the answer is no, I can't, but I can connect you with a telemedicine physician who can evaluate you, determine if a particular medication is, is indicated or would be helpful, and they are able to prescribe in all 50 states. So it's very helpful. Um, and those sites all have access, um, and Mark, to pharmacies that will actually fill legitimate prescriptions. I referred two people there just earlier today, and it is early COVID care. Uh, we mistakenly uh, announced it as my COVID care in right. one of our previous podcasts, and I've been I've been correcting that with, with messages <laughs> from people saying, the website doesn't exist anymore. It's been taken down. What happened to her? So it is, it is, it is not my COVID care. It's early COVID care. Earlycovidcare.org. Yes. So, Dr. Victory, um, what's the path forward? Give our audience some hope, a silver lining. Um, how do they lower the fear and have hope for the future in, in all things COVID right now? Well, I think the reality is that we are largely out of this pandemic if the government would simply let us get back to living our lives. Um, I've said from the very beginning that the answer is to rally around and protect that relatively small group of people who are legitimately at high risk from COVID. And we know who they are. They're people over the age essentially of 70 or 75 and people with a well-defined set of comorbidities, namely obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And let the rest of us go about our lives. As of you know, this week, 44 million Americans have tested positive for COVID. The CDC themselves estimates that somewhere between five and six times that number, their multiplier is 5.8, 
5.8 times that number have actually had COVID. That puts us somewhere in the range of 240, 250 million Americans have already had COVID. We know, and the evidence is growing, that natural immunity is broad, robust, and enduring. So those people do not need to worry about this. And then on top of it, we have a way to treat this if you do get ill. So I would encourage people to push back on these unnecessary regulations. There is no rationale for discriminating in any way, shape, or form between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Because vaccinated or not, you can get COVID, you can become symptomatic with it, and you certainly can spread it. So I encourage people to push back. We have a voice and we've got to exert it. Push back on the uh, vaccine mandates, push back on the mask mandates, push back on all of these limitations. And really, I think people should not be living in fear. One of the greatest problems, and again, going back to how I got started down this road with COVID, uh, is based on my body of work that I've done on leadership in times of crisis. I teach a class on it, and I, I, one of the take-homes from that is that people are unable to make good decisions when they're operating from a place of fear. You cannot make good decisions. And that is what we have done. We have driven people to the basement, literally and figuratively. People are cowering in their basements, staying indoors, feeling like there's impending doom. That is not the case. Most people are not at significant risk. If you've had this virus, you're over it. You've got a great immune uh, immunity to it. And we have a really good cocktail of medications to treat it. So I encourage people to get back out there, make your plans for the holidays, invite your families for Thanksgiving, plan on getting together for Christmas and Hanukkah, put out the decorations and get ready to get back to living as we always have known it. We don't need a new normal. The old normal was just fine. That's awesome. Well, you've heard it here, Dr. Victory. It's time to celebrate Christmas and Hanukkah, despite what Dr. Fauci may tell us. Dr. Victory, thank you so much for joining us on informeddissentmedia.com. You have an open invitation to come back, and uh, we so appreciate you uh, being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, informed dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.